We are going to continue in our series in Romans, and really what we're going to just look at today are the two verses that Paul is going to spend the remainder of the letter unpacking, uh, and that is the, these powerful passages in, in verse, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And what we're going to be looking at today is the gospel, um, God's power, God's righteousness, uh, and how that power and how that righteousness comes into effect in our lives, which we are told is that the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith, that it comes from faith to faith, uh, that it begins with faith and that it ends with faith. Um, and I think that this is, th- these two verses are sort of the center of the Christian life. And Paul writes these words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God or from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now Paul begins these two verses with this incredible statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it forces us to ask the question of why are we ashamed? And I started thinking actually through the theological implications of Paul's very statement. He's not just making a direct statement about, about a, a boldness that comes, uh, that is in direct correspondence to a temperament that's fearless. I think that he's, he's speaking something that has theological implications. It's the implications that comes of one who has had their life turned upside down by Jesus Christ, who has gone from death into life. And that death into life is not just God granting us forgiveness of our sins, but it's God actually coming into our lives, what we are told in Ezekiel, as the prophet looks forward to the, day, to the age of grace and the coming of the gospel, is that that there will be a day when God will put his spirit into the heart of humanity, that there will be the removal of the heart of stone and what will be given is a heart of flesh or a heart of the spirit, God's spirit, God's very personhood coming to dwell within us. That's why it's not just a child's prayer to pray, Jesus, come into my heart and make your home there. And we're going to see the implications of the gospel played out. And Paul will get into great detail on one of the the most incredible realities of of gospel transformation is that we're going to see that there is a civil war going on within us where the flesh is constantly at war with the spirit. And the question is, is how can we live in the victory of the spirit when we have our old nature, our flesh, continually trying to resurrect itself? How do we move beyond just the acceptance of the forgiveness of sins into the victorious life of Jesus now? So when Paul says, I am not ashamed, I think that there is a theological implication that actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And what we are told is that with our first parents, that they they were in right relationship. Sin had not entered the picture. And because sin had not entered the picture, they were in right relationship with God, they were in right relationship with with, uh, one another, and they were in right relationship with themselves. I always say that the essence of salvation is a restoration of relationship, while sin is the destruction of relationship in three directions. 
What is it that we are told about our first parents in that state of sinlessness? That they were naked, that is that they weren't hidden, and this isn't saying that God approves 6,000 person naked bike rides across Portland. Uh, That's part of what Nick was referring to as flamboyance. Uh, No, I believe that, that Paul is speaking even to this kind of theological implication of what it means to have restoration of relationship with God that comes through the total forgiveness of the perfect atoning work of Jesus and the impartation of his spirit into our lives, which is that they were both naked, man and his wife, and they were not what? Ashamed. I I literally, I was working on this message and this literally just came to me. It was just this realization that Paul is just speaking more than I'm bold and you need to be bold too. That one of the implications of the gospel is is, is about a a restoration of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, the image of God is at play um, in every single human being that you meet, whether saved or not saved. But sin has done something horrible to that image. It hasn't destroyed it. It hasn't annihilated it, but it has infiltrated it in every arena so that everything we do is mixture. We are marred by this thing called sin. And the best way to define sin is just simply our uncanny ability to continue to make ourselves our own gods. It's our placing of ourselves upon the throne of our hearts. It's our rebellion against God's rule. It's our rejection of God's grace. And more than that, we don't, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So it's a fundamental problem that, that is at play from the, from the word go in our lives. This is what David meant when he said, in my mother's womb, I was in sin. He hadn't done anything, but he is recognizing the implications, the theological implications that all of creation has been infiltrated by what we are told the first Adam's sin that has entered into the world. And it is a mysterious and supernatural reality that plays itself out into every arena of creation. And this is why we will see later that all of creation groans awaiting its redemption. So sin is our inability to tell the truth about God because we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand God. We don't understand one another. There is something that is broken. The very thing that Nick said about why he came to church is that there is a nihilism. There is an emptiness. There is a longing for something more than what was being experienced. He was in love. He was with someone that he wanted to be with, but he wasn't content. There was something missing that pushed them to say, is there more? And I think that, that the, the, the impulse within the human heart, there is a longing within the human heart to be right with God, whatever that means. And the gospel is about telling us exactly what that means. That religion tells us that if you do these things, God, whoever that God is, will accept you. But the gospel says, we don't even know who we are. We don't even know God because we are so fundamentally broken. We are so impotent. We are so bound by this thing called sin that the only thing we can hope for is that Jesus, like Jesus speaking into the cave where Lazarus lay dead, is that someone will raise us from the dead. And this is the power of the gospel. And when someone goes from death to life, 
and truly begins to experience that relational correction that has been destroyed and distorted by our fundamental brokenness, it begins to bring out a boldness. It's a boldness that flows out of being put in right relationship, which gives us the ability to speak rightly about the God who alone is righteous. I didn't write that down, and I'm glad it's recorded because it seemed, seemed solid in the moment when I just spoke it. <laughs> I like what John Stott says about the shame factor. He says, he knew that the message of the cross, that was Paul, was foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others because it undermines self-righteousness and challenges self-indulgence. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition, often contempt, and sometimes ridicule. That's the reality of what we are confronted with as a people of God, as a people of the gospel. And we don't have to look very far to recognize that that continues to be a problem, and it's an increasing problem in our culture today. So if we don't understand what it is that the gospel has, has achieved in our lives, if we're not experiencing the victorious life of Christ now, if we aren't experiencing that restoration of relationship, then it's going to be very difficult for us to actually stand unashamed. And so we need to understand this. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And these are the things that really cause shame, I believe, in the believer's life today. And it was the same problem then. Nothing new under the sun. First of all, there's intellectual shame. The gospel is considered to be intellectual suicide by critics a religion for the simple-minded, and we are surrounded by these critics. It's one of the things that I shared last week about that interview with Christopher Hitchens, who was an intellectual giant, and he just went after what he considered to be the intellectual suicide of believing or buying into the gospel. But here's the thing, the shame that we feel over um, our inability at times to reconcile what we see and what we've bought into as somehow science being so much more certain than the faith in which we have placed our faith is deeply problematic. First of all, because the Bible is not primarily a scientific document. It's a proclamation about a brokenness in relationship between God and man and his redemptive purposes on how to restore that relationship. I loved what Tim Mackey would always say. He's like, the moment you're going to have problems with Genesis is the moment you try to make it into a scientific document. It's not trying to answer the question of how was the world made. It is answering the question of what is a an appropriate theodicy that there is a God who is the creator of all things. And however it is that he made all things is not the primary thing that Genesis is concerned with. What it's saying is that God has the power to speak creation into existence. And this God is a covenantal God who is faithful to his people, not because, of, because they are faithful, but because of his covenantal faithfulness, which is directly connected to his righteous character. And the powerful reality about intellectual shame is that we fall into these false dichotomies that believes that we need to somehow be able to prove our faith to an intellectually intense age. But let's just face it. 
we, people are not nearly as smart as they think they are, including ourselves, okay? And it doesn't matter how intellectually articulate you are. I watched an amazing debate between uh, John Lennox and uh, Christopher Hitchens that took place in Glasgow, and it was so clear that Lennox annihilated Hitchens in the debate, so, so, so clear that Hitchens himself said Lennox clearly won that debate. But all the atheists sitting in the crowd were like, no, Hitchens won. And, and Hitchens like, I did not win. Lennox won. But what was fascinating is that the debate happens and there's a winner and a loser, but nobody was coming to faith from it. Not that I could see. There's no altar call at the end of it because winning arguments is not the same as witnessing to the gospel. And what we need to understand, as we will see, is that we do not need to be ashamed of what we do not know. And we do not need to be ashamed of who we know because if God has saved you and has brought life and hope into your life, that is more than what many are experiencing because people are just wanting to know where they can find hope. I wasn't looking for every answer. I was looking for someone to save me when I came to faith. And what I wanted was to see the tangible evidence of a life transformed by whatever, whatever faith it was that I was exploring. And it was Christianity alone when I began to go to church that where I saw real people, simple people, intelligent people, different classes of people celebrating in this place of equality at the foot of the cross because they had gone from death to life. And this is why Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, not your ability to articulate every answer. It's not that we shouldn't press into a deeper and deeper understanding of the gospel, but listen, you will never come to an end of it. And the more you learn, the more you will realize how little you know. So intellectual shame is a reality because of the pressures of society. But if the gospel has truly restored relationship, we are to be able to stand before God unashamed. And that is the power of the gospel. Social shame is another massive issue. To follow Jesus in many circles is to be a social pariah. It's not just foolish, but it's socially offensive. I experienced this firsthand is that when I first became a believer, I realized very quickly if I wanted to put the end to a conversation in a public setting was to begin to talk with people about Jesus. Because there is power in the name of Christ. And honestly, one of the things that drove me to faith was that every time I tried to ask a group of friends about Jesus and in a public setting, they would act like I said the most offensive thing that one could possibly say in a conversation and the air would be sucked out of the room. And it didn't matter. We could talk about Buddha. We could talk about, we could talk about Islam. We could talk about, you know, Scientology. All of that was free game. The moment you're like, hey, what do you guys think of Jesus? It was just like, what the? And just the awkwardness and the, the nervousness. And I actually think that it's actually a picture of the, it goes beyond, well, it's just because so much bad stuff's been done in the name of Jesus. Really? So much bad stuff has been done in the name of everything because that's what it means to be a sinful human being. So I think that it, those are all false arguments, but there is a lot of shame that goes with the fact that it is uncool to be a Christian. And anyone that tries to make their Christianity more cool, 
Uh, man, that is so uncool. Like, <laughs> the lamest Christians I have ever met are the Christians that try to make Jesus somehow not uncool. And you're just like, yeah, you've, you, I don't know what you are, but that, I, when I came to faith and the whole emergent movement, that was like the essence of it. We are going to present the gospel in a new way that grabs a hold of young people's hearts because we're going to make Jesus relevant. Did not the word relevance get destroyed by young Christians in the early 2000s? And it's like, I never want to, I'm like, A, the gospel is always relevant and it's not, oh, and, and this would be the, the classic statement. You know, the message stays the same, but the methods change. And I'm like, no, no, that's BS. The reality is, is that the message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the method is the Holy Spirit convicting people and drawing them to the truth of who Jesus is. When, when, <laughs> when Luis Palau came and preached the gospel on Good Friday, he said there's a plane that is going to two different cities and they both start with H. You only want to go to one of those places. Nobody can say that. That's so uncool and it's so lacked any description. And then you know what? He does an altar call and it's like 60 people are like, I want Jesus. I'm like, how did he do that? It's because he just, he didn't care. He doesn't care what you think about his presentation because he knows that when Jesus is lifted up, people are gonna get drawn to him. And I just think it just showed, like, how did a guy in his 80s dying of cancer speak at this church filled with young people in inner southeast Portland, present a gospel using all of these, these statements that most preachers would consider to be, like, inappropriate from the pulpit or, or out of touch with culture? And, and in actuality, the gospel remains the same. It is powerful when it is proclaimed with boldness. I think the social shame uh, that is often experienced uh, in the intellectual shame uh, is driven honestly uh, by this deep desire to, uh, for Christians, which I think is an, an incredibly dangerous game and, and it'll lead you nowhere, which is this deep desire to be to be consistently exegeting culture. We're not called to exegete culture. We're called to exegete the cross. And I think that you can't keep up with culture anyway. And the world will always do the world better. So why are we worried about it? Moral shame is really the final one and I think that has the greatest implications today. And that is that we forget that to speak of a king is to speak of a kingdom. And to speak of a king and his kingdom is to speak of that kingdom's ethic as well. And the ethic of Jesus' kingdom is repulsive to most modern people. Think about the sexual ethic of Jesus' kingdom. And look at the age in which we live. Look at the, the movement away from the, the, the traditional family. Look at the movements away from the, the beautiful distinctions between 
male and female. Look at the movements away from even discussions around gender. Sexuality is now fixed. Gender is now fluid. We are dealing with, it, with a time where there is more and more married couples moving toward openness and, and this idea that somehow polygamy is the more natural bent of the human heart. Maybe if you're talking about Pandora's box, but if you forget that Pandora's box is a, is a never-ending death cycle that speaks to the very truth of Scripture that says that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted, should we be surprised that people are offended by a gospel that says, no, there is a God and he has a kingdom and his kingdom has a rule and he is the creator of all things. When people make themselves gods, they turn that kingdom and that ethic upside down on its head. And this is why we find ourselves today in the place that we see in the book of Judges and people did what was right in their own eyes. And this is why if we live that way, if there, is no, if there is no moral groundwork, if there is no right from wrong, then there is literally nothing, nothing, guys. And, and, and I know when I even kind of mention, you're like, oh, no, where's he going? Where's he going with this? This is going to get uncomfortable. I brought a friend today. And I just want you to know that that's the thing, is that there is literally nothing that is inappropriate if indeed we have the right to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And this is why the gospel is embarrassing to many of us. And this is why pastors all over the place today are surrendering their orthodoxy in attempt to make Jesus more acceptable or accessible to the non-believing ears. But I'm telling you, the moment you give up the kingdom and the ethics of that kingdom, you'll lose the king, and you are presenting a different Jesus. So, good, I hope that made you guys all feel better. Um, so, so why should we not be ashamed then? How do we avoid the shame? Well, we need to understand what the gospel is. And the first thing that Paul tells us is that the gospel is God's power to salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, the, the, the key is, is that it's not our responsibility to create a moral ethic so that we don't have to be embarrassed. It's not our responsibility to make somehow the gospel more socially acceptable because let's face it, if anyone has been a, a non-believer for any amount of time as, a, as an adult, you'll realize that people are primarily dysfunctional and that Mary Carr was right, wherever there is more than one person is what defines a dysfunctional family. And so, and, and, and you don't have to look very far to know that, that the culture in which we live doesn't have anything to offer because I know for myself that all the years I spent chasing after some sort of enlightenment, some sort of real happiness or peace, all I did was hurt people and be hurt by people. And I found what Nick referred to as that river of emptiness again and again. So, for us, the question really becomes almost a pragmatic one, is which one actually, what life brings transformation? What belief brings actual transformation to one's life? And Paul says, here's the key, is that the only thing that will actually eradicate our shame of the gospel is if the gospel has truly gotten a hold of you because you can't save yourself and you can't save anyone else. God's power is what 
saves lost humanity. And that speaks something very powerful to us about God, is that God is in the business of pouring out his mercy and grace, his one-way love upon sinful humanity. Why has God chosen the one who could speak and the universe leapt into existence? Why has he continued to move toward broken, sinful, rebellious people, a people that continue to say, I will be my own God, and he says, you know what? I love you. In spite of that, I love you. In spite of, in spite of the fact that I, am, that I am complete in myself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect community within the Godhead, I need nothing, and yet I choose to not exist without you. The power of God is God's ability to enter into human sinfulness, our brokenness, our lowest point, and to make it his own so that we can be restored. And Paul says when you begin to understand this, the power of God is the dynamic of the believer's life. And what is the nature of this salvation? It is movement. I think too many people turn the gospel into getting saved out of, from hell so that we can get into heaven. The fear of damnation. That isn't really talked about much anymore because we have done great damage to the righteousness of God and have downplayed his hatred of what is evil and his love of what is good. Uh, but let's face it, many people still come to faith thinking that the primary motivation of the gospel is that I would want to get out of hell so that I can get into heaven. That there is a reality. You are changing locations when we have a saving faith in Jesus as far as what eternal destiny is at play. But that is not the primary goal of the gospel. It's moving from guilt to innocence. Yes, it's to Jesus said, when you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, the, the cup represents my blood, blood that is spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And that we live in guilt and shame. And in a sinless state, one can be not ashamed. And what we need to understand is that what is declared over those that put their faith in Christ is that they are declared sinless because they are seen by the Father as in the Son. And that powerful reality is true, that we move from guilt to innocence. We are declared innocent even though we're guilty. And this is something that is so beautiful about the gospel. But once again, that is not the entire story. It's not just about Jesus giving us a blank slate and saying, you're forgiven, now good luck. That's not what the gospel is primarily about. It's it is, if I could say it in a nutshell, it's primarily about the God of life bringing dead things to life. But how does he do that? It's not about getting you out of hell and into heaven, but really the gospel is about God getting out of heaven and coming into our personal hells and putting his life within us. It's about, it's about a God who wants to come in, in so overwhelm the personality by actually living with us, dwelling within us, that we now can enjoy heaven on the way to heaven because what makes heaven heaven is God's relational presence fully available to us at all times. And so the power of the gospel is God's power to literally transform the entire reality 
of the believer's life. And I think a lot of people have enough faith to get out of hell, to get into heaven, but they don't understand the gospel enough to enjoy the fullness of the saving life of Christ right now in this presence. The gospel is power. And it's when we realize that it's God's power, which means that we do not have the power to save ourselves or to save anyone else. It is then that we begin a movement toward the true nature of salvation because it causes us to cast ourselves in dependence upon the God who has the power to change things and make things new. This is why, Jesus, why Paul says, if anyone be in Christ, all things are new. We are a new creation. It's a movement from unrighteousness to righteousness. God's power is the first component of the gospel, but it's God's righteousness, which is the outcome of this saving movement toward us. Now, one of the questions that often arises is what is meant by the word righteousness in verse 17? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God or from God is revealed. And some have basically spoken to this idea that, that what it's talking about is that God has revealed his attributes. He has revealed his character um, uh, to the world through his, uh, through his gospel. But, but here's one of the problems with that is that one thing if you will read through the Bible in its, in its fullness, one thing you will note immediately, and it's one of the great problems with, uh, with the, the ways that theology can become abstract, is often the attributes of God are talked about uh, in, without its proper context. And here's what I mean by that, is that God reveals nothing about himself in scripture that is not directly connected to his relationship with us. So it's not helpful to say that God is omniscient, that he has all knowledge, unless that omniscience is connected to his relationship with sinful, broken humanity, which means that he knows all things there are to know about you, not because he just can't help it, but because he chooses to know you. Because God is the one who's truly free and has the ability to choose in ways that we cannot. He chooses to know you. It's not when we say God is omnipresent, that's kind of creepy if God is all places at all times, if it's just disconnected from human life. But if we say that God is present everywhere, it's because he wants to be close to you. He is choosing to make himself known. He is choosing to make himself available. I think that when we say God is all-powerful, power for power's sake is, is deeply disturbing. But when we see that God's power is most perfectly demonstrated through his ability to enter into his rebellious creation, take upon himself something that he was not before, which is God became man, and actually enter into the sinful predicament, the sinless God, actually he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. What that tells us about God's righteousness is and what that tells us about God's power and his perfections, it is most perfectly demonstrated through his humiliation for us. And I think that this is something that is often we lose sight of and we can start talking about big concepts like righteousness. But what we need to understand is that what Paul is essentially focusing on when he talks about the righteousness of God, and it literally means to be right, to be just. When, it's, when righteousness is attributed to God, it's speaking of his perfections. 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, but it's actually connected to his covenantal faithfulness or loyalty to his covenantal people. And so righteousness for us, what we're told here is that for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, I would say more appropriately from God, is revealed. And that is that God wants us to share in his nature. It's about a restoration, once again, of relationship. And what Paul is focusing on, the righteousness of God is a divine attribute or quality. Righteousness describes his character together with his actions, which are in keeping with his character. But in Romans, God's personal righteousness, as John Stott says, is supremely seen in the cross of Christ. When God presented him, we are told later in Romans, as a sacrifice of atonement, he did it to demonstrate his justice we are told in in chapter three, verse 25. And then again in verse 26, in order that he might both be just, righteous, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross is that strange place where justice and mercy kiss in a profound way, where Jesus on the cross is both the judge, the just judge, and the judged in our place, which allows God to justify his ability to grant forgiveness to sinners like you and I. Because Jesus took the guilt, the shame into himself and he made it his own. Jesus is both the judge and the judged. It's what makes the gospel so unique. Religion says, listen, if you want to be justified by God, you have to do these things. And the gospel says, you can't do any of those things. And this is why God must be the one who is the judged and the judge so that he can justify the impotent sinner. And this is why it's offensive to those that are perishing is because the gospel declares that you are not your best you and you can never be your best you and you cannot save yourself and you will never be able to save yourself or anyone else. And whatever salvation you think you have obtained in your own effort is fleeting and an illusion. And Jesus comes to bring us reality and the reality as we're gonna see through Paul's writings is that we are far more sinful than we can even get our heads around. This is why we need to understand that throughout Romans, Paul is defending the righteous character and behavior of God, for he is convinced that whatever God does in salvation or in judgment is absolutely consistent with his moral perfection. That righteousness is revealed by God in the gospel as a divine achievement, God's saving work accomplished for us because he is a God whose grace, his one-way love, moves toward us not because we deserve it, but because it's his nature to do so. Salvation then is primarily the restoration of right relationship. It's a righteousness that comes to us. The reason we are declared righteous when we put our faith in Jesus is because Jesus is put into our hearts, into our lives by the impartation of the Holy Spirit so that we receive the righteous one in our lives. This is how we can both be saved from sin but continue sinning, is that we have been 
purchased at a price, that the Father views us as ones who have been covered by the perfection of the Son, and yet we can still have this reality by which the freedom that comes through the gospel can be a freedom that is terribly used and abused. This is why I, I like what, uh, what Paul writes in Philippians. It says in chapter three, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is trying to do the right thing, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is speaking here of a righteousness from God granted to us. And how do we receive that power and that righteousness, which are both in God's possession given to us? And we are told here, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The just shall live by faith, quoting from Habakkuk. The, the picture that we're gonna see later is that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God chose Abraham and said, you're mine, follow me. And Abraham believed God. He said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm going to, through your seed, bless the whole world. Abraham believed him and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything, he believed. And this is why we are called to be, to exercise a faith like Abraham. And this is why we need to understand that righteousness of God is experienced how is the righteousness of God is experienced if none is righteous, which is what Romans will go on to declare, that we really are a string of zeros. As we're gonna look at every arena, Paul shows us that the wrath of God is revealed from all, uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What we're gonna see is that, that that unrighteousness is at play in every arena of life, even for those that were religious that considered themselves a covenantal people. Paul's gonna say it doesn't make a difference um, if whether you were Jew or Gentile, doesn't make a difference whether you were the most raging hedonistic pagan or the most religiously impulsed individual living rigorously upright lives. In light of the perfections of God's righteousness, every one of you come up a big fat zero. And you're like, man, Paul, that's positive. But how can the gospel be good news if we don't understand what the gospel is saving us from? It's saving us from ourselves. It takes Christ in us to be a Christian. You're not a Christian because you are associated with Christians. You're not a Christian because you're sitting here with your parents today. You're not a Christian because you come to church. You're not a Christian because you read your Bible. You're not a Christian because you pray. You're not a Christian because you serve the poor or do any of those things. You are only a Christian in the truest sense of the word if Christ is in you. And the way that Christ comes into us is through faith. But we need to understand and qualify what faith is. Faith, as I always like to say, is a disposition of trust toward an object that allows that object to do something for you. I always say this is a better illustration in the context of the Northeast Church, but every one of you are exercising faith in the pews that you're sitting on. And you know what? It's solid. Those things are not going down. None of them are. But in the Northeast building where it was all hand-picked chairs that I purchased personally over time, not because they were safe to sit on, but because they looked cute. Uh, I remember the one Sunday a woman fell through the chair onto the, onto the floor. 
I did not acknowledge in that moment that I had bought the chair personally, but it was an amazing illustration of that she had exercised total faith in the chair. She expected the chair to do what it was supposed to do, but faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. And so it is that with Christ, it's not the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not even the belief that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And faith is not, not our allegiance to Christ, as there's a new book out trying to get rid of the word faith and say that, uh, that we, the justified by allegiance alone. It just does damage to the scripture. It's like, I think it front loads of the gospel. It still, it turns it back into law. But faith is more than just saying, I believe Jesus exists. Faith is the recognition, and this is why it, we are told to repent and believe. Repentance flows out. It says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Repentance flows out of a recognition that I can't save myself. I am lost. I need help. And it's the simple cry of the, of the human heart that says, yes, Jesus, I trust you to save me. It's giving him the right to be responsible for our lives. It's casting ourselves in total dependence upon him. And Paul's gonna show us the implications of, of what it means to have saving faith. Now, I believe it's possible to put our faith in Christ in such a way that one becomes born again. And that gospel begins to set us free. But it is not just a one-time event by which one says, yes, Jesus, and then goes about doing their own thing. Because all that does is put you in that horrible tension of knowing the truth but then rebelling against it because the gospel is a daily disposition by which one surrenders their lives again and again and again at the foot of the cross. It is a daily yes to Jesus. It's a willingness to die again and again and again so we can live in the power of his resurrection life. This is what faith is. Faith is a disposition toward God that allows God the ability to be God in and through us. I like how Bart always framed it. He says, faith is this, that I allow Christ to be in me, through me, and for me what I cannot be for myself. It's the recognition I am lost. So repentance is I was trying to control my life. I turn now to you, Jesus. You now have the right to dictate your terms in and through my life. And it, I'm just telling you guys right now, the transformation that brought the power of the gospel into, into clarity for me where I truly experienced the peace of God was not my initial conversion, but it was my moment of total surrender where I began to taste the cost because I realized that I had not picked up my cross because I realized that I was still trying to hold on to my attempts to be something that God did not call me to be. And I wanted to control my existence. And I was miserable as a Christian because I knew the truth enough to experience the possibility of freedom, but I was utilizing that freedom to continue to serve the flesh. And it was destroying me. And it was in the moment where I said, Lord, I believe that you know better than me when it comes to my happiness. And Lord, what do you want from me? And I felt in the fullness of my being, the Lord said, you need to lay down your music and you don't get it back until I give it back to you. And I remember the costliness of calling my band and quitting 
and not going on the tour that I was so excited for and throwing away the $10,000 I had just spent on the demo. By the way, I donated bone marrow to pay for that stinking demo, uh, <laughs> which that's hardcore. That's real deal right there. That's commitment. And you only get $250, $250. So all I did was debt and gave up bone marrow, which hurts really bad. Uh, and, and I just remember the, the pain, the loss of friendships of quitting the band and telling my longtime friend, Mark, I'm not gonna play with you anymore because I have to follow Jesus. And telling that to a non-believer, he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And losing friendships over it. And losing the, the, the dream that was so real for me from the time I moved to Seattle until, until I laid it down that day. And the dream didn't just die easily, it hurt. But all of a sudden I experienced this internal freedom and there was such this relief of just saying, I'm not in control, Jesus is. It actually saved my marriage. It became the catalyst by which Darcy would come to faith a year later. It became the movement toward ministry and it became actually, finally, and I often say, God will give us what we want when we no longer need it and he will give it to us in a way that we never expected it. Faith releases the power of God into our lives when we truly allow God to be God in and through our lives. It's costly. You'll lose a lot, but you gain life and you gain it in abundance. You see, it is the power of God. It's his righteousness to place over our lives and it comes to us moment by moment as we say, Yes to that finished yes that was declared over humanity on the cross of Calvary. Yes, I have been saved and nothing can change that. But what we need to know is if we want to experience the saving life of Christ, we need to continue to say yes again and again. I die with you the good death so that I can live in the power of your resurrection life. And I pray today that you will recognize that this is why it says that we live from faith to faith. It means that you don't start with faith and then move toward logic. Faith actually begins to inform reason. It actually begins to be the, the thing that actually shapes the mind because the mind then begins to look at everything through the lens of Jesus who is with us, for us, working in us and through us. And we begin to see the world for what it really is and what God wants to do with it and what he is going to do with it. And the question begins to be the burning question of everything in our lives, which is Jesus, I want to be a conduit by which your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven until you come again in your fullness to reign forever that I might reign with you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. The only thing that will be told was well done and good and faithful was those moments in our lives where we said, Jesus, you're the one in control. May Jesus be your everything, for it is then that you will find the restoration of relationship where we can, like our first parents, stand before God in the world and be not ashamed. Amen? Let's pray.